Good idea, Ernie. A toast. <laughs> to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, we come before you today as this season of Advent begins, a season that offers us time to reflect on who you are and what you've done for us, particularly through sending Jesus as, as this little baby boy wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Lord, renew this, this sense of awe that, that ought to be there when we think of, of the glorious majesty that, that was wrapped up in a little human being who would grow to become a man and give his life for us. As we reflect on that today in the coming weeks, bless us and help us to see you. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, uh, being the first week in Advent, as I said, we're starting a a sermon series here, which is going to go kind of for three weeks, kind of for four, because uh, we're going to talk about three different movies, and then... uh, on the 22nd, we're going to have our, our annual uh, Christmas celebration here with, with the big choir, with the wind ensemble, with the Girls of Grace. And we're going to have a video that kind of uh, wraps up the series and involves all of the movies. So, so as we get started today, I um, thought I'd ask, what's your favorite Christmas movie? Maybe tell, tell it to the person next to you. Yeah, for some of you, I, I can see, you know, something comes to mind right away. For others, you're like, well, there's, there's so many to choose from. I have no idea. I love them all. Or maybe I, I don't love very many of them. But uh, yeah, no matter what your favorite Christmas movie is, um, we all probably have at least one that, that we feel like we really just, we have to watch it at some point in the year or else it's just not Christmas time for us. For my mom, growing up, uh, it was always... It's a Wonderful Life. So I've seen this movie thousands of times, um, which is not such a terrible thing. But uh, yeah, It's a Wonderful Life came out in 1946. It was actually, I was kind of surprised to hear this, it was a monumental flop in theaters when it came out. And um, it was only 25 years after that when Republic Pictures had a filing error, they didn't renew the copyright license, um, that it really became popular because the TV networks could then play it without paying basically anything. And so uh, It's a Wonderful Life made it onto the holiday airwaves each year, and uh, as a result, it became this beloved Christmas classic that we all know and, uh, and many of us love. So uh, It's a Wonderful Life is, is a pretty uh, powerful movie. In fact, um, I found out it's been ranked the number one most powerful movie of all time and also the number one inspirational film of all time by the American Film Institute. Um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the plot, the movie stars Jimmy Stewart as the likable George Bailey. Uh, George Bailey lives in the small, quaint town of Bedford Falls, and uh, he's an all-around good guy. The movie opens with a couple of scenes from his childhood. Uh, the first one is, is when he and his brother and some friends are sledding. His brother Harry falls through the ice, and so George dives in after him to, to save his life, and he does, and as a result, he loses the hearing in one of his ears. The very next scene shows George working at a drugstore as a kid, and and his boss, Mr. Gower, accidentally fills a prescription with poison pills. And so George catches the mistake and saves another boy's life. 
We're then introduced to George's father, who runs a business called Bailey Brothers Building and Loan, which offers affordable housing uh, to the residents of Bedford Falls that, that they couldn't afford otherwise in tough economic times. And the Bailey Brothers' generosity continually frustrates Mr. Potter, who is described as the richest and meanest man in town, and his greed and avarice drives him to continually try to, to shut down the building and loan. So uh, let's introduce ourselves to Mr. Potter here. Did you put any real pressure on these people of yours to pay those mortgages? Times are bad, Mr. Potter. A lot of these people are out of work. Well, foreclosed. I can't do that. These families have children. They're not my children. But they're somebody's children, Mr. Potter. Are you running a business or a charity war? Well, all my Not money. with my money. Mr. Potter, what makes you such a hard skull character? You have no family, no children. You can't begin to spend all the money you've got. Oh, I suppose I should give it to miserable failures like you and that idiot brother of yours to spend for me. Nice guy, huh? Well, throughout his childhood, uh, George's father holds Mr. Potter at bay. And uh, George really respects his father and admires the work that he does. But George himself has big dreams, dreams to leave this small town of Bedford Falls, to travel the world, and to do important things, as he shares with Mary, his future wife, in this scene. Mary, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow, and the next day, and next year, and a year after that. I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet, and I'm going to see the world. Italy, Greece, the Parthenon, the Colosseum. Then I'm coming back here and go to college to see what they know. And then I'm going to build things. Isn't Jimmy Stewart great? I just have to say that. But something always seems to get in the way of George's dreams. As he's talking to Mary here, in, in that scene we just saw, someone comes and tells him his father has had a stroke and he ends up dying. And so George has this big European tour planned out and he has to cancel it so he can stay and run the building and loan temporarily. Then he plans when that's over, he's going to go to college. But he finds out that the board is going to shut down Bailey's building and loan or hand it over to Mr. Potter unless he stays himself to head it up. So he gives all of his college money to his brother Harry and stays behind. So time passes and uh, George and Mary get married. And they've saved up $2,000 for the honeymoon. And just as they're about to leave town, George finds out that Mr. Potter has called in all of the loans that his business holds. And so people are rushing to get their money back. And uh, George doesn't have it. And so he ends up using uh, all but $2 of his honeymoon money to save the building and loan. In fact, again and again, George becomes so good at thwarting Mr. Potter's nefarious schemes that the Mr. Potter finally decides he has no choice but to bribe him. And so Mr. Potter calls him in, offers him this lucrative financial package, and says, come and work for me. And George says, well, what will happen to the building and loan? And Potter says, come on, just think about yourself here. Think about your family. But George stands opposed to everything that Potter stands for, and so he refuses him. All along, throughout the movie, we see that George always puts the needs of other people before his own. He cares more about his, his family, his friends, and the people of his hometown than himself. So as a result, he ends up staying in Bedford Falls as his brother Harry goes off to college, and then uh, Harry can hear out of both of his ears, so he gets to fight in World War II and becomes a big war hero. So, one Christmas Eve, Harry is, is coming back to town, and there's a big celebration planned. That same day, their uncle Billy happens to, to go to the bank to make an $8,000 deposit for the company, 
But he accidentally uh, ends up giving the $8,000 to Mr. Potter when he's kind of showing off with the newspaper headline that has Harry in it. He hands him the newspaper and the money's inside. So Potter, uh, being the, the gentle, nice man that he is, takes the money and hides it. And uh, Billy has no idea how he lost it, so he runs to George to tell him that something's gone terribly wrong. Now, it just so happens that a bank examiner was there that day to conduct an audit, and so George immediately realizes that the missing $8,000 will mean bankruptcy, scandal, and prison. And so he tells Uncle Billy, I'm not going to prison for this. He runs home, and he's upset, and he yells at all of his kids and his wife, and then he storms out, and he ends up finding himself in Mr. Potter's office where he, he basically begs Potter for help. Now, Mr. Potter knows what's going on. He knows that, that it was Billy's fault that the money's missing. He himself has the money, and yet Potter refuses to help and accuses George of all sorts of terrible things and ends up telling George that with his life insurance policy, he is worth more dead than alive. And so in despair, George drives to a nearby bridge and considers ending it all. In the scene that is about to come on the screen. Oh, let's try that again. So this guy that uh, George saves is Clarence, George's guardian angel who's been sent to earth to help George out and also to earn his wings. So uh, what's the famous line from the movie? Say it with me. Every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. That is completely false. Um, That is nowhere in the Bible. In fact, uh, this isn't what the sermon's about, but I can't help but comment on this. A human being is a different creature than an angel. So when a human dies like Clarence did, you don't like go and wait to get your wings um, and like wait for somebody in a slot machine or something to, to grant them to you. Uh, but anyway, we'll just we'll kind of leave it at that. So, so the story continues. Clarence and George go to this toll booth to, to dry off. And uh, George kind of hints at his predicament and Clarence tries to talk some sense into him. Yeah, so you still think killing yourself would make everyone feel happier, eh? Well, I don't know. I guess you're right. I suppose it'd been better if I'd never been born at all. What'd you say? I said I wish I'd never been born. 
So for the next portion of the movie, Clarence grants George his wish, a world in which George Bailey had never been born. So George goes back into town, but, but nobody recognizes him because he never existed in the first place. And George barely recognizes his hometown because Bedford Falls has become Pottersville, this, this sad and perverse place. The building alone is nowhere to be found. And George learns that Mr. Gower, his boss at the drugstore, went to prison for poisoning a child. He finds out that uh, all of his friends whom he had helped find housing now live in these dirty, rundown shacks owned by Mr. Potter. He finds out his Uncle Billy is in an insane asylum and his mother is poor and running this sketchy boarding house. And then Mary, he runs into her and terrifies her because she doesn't know him, but she has become a miserable old maid. But worst of all is what George learns in this scene. Are you sure this is Bailey Park? No, I'm not sure of anything anymore. All I know is this should be Bailey Park. But where are the houses? We went here to build them. Your brother, Harry Bailey, broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? So in your sermon outline for today, in, in the sermon notes section, which, which again, we, we invite you to take some notes and then take them home. We've got those connect points for you to use as a family discussion. Um, I have just three questions today. And so if you take a look at that first one with me, how might things be different if you'd never been born? Have you ever thought about that before? In some ways, I hope you haven't, uh, because if you, if you are thinking that, asking that question, you might be kind of in George Bailey's shoes, hating yourself, wishing that, that you'd never been born. That's not how I want to look at that question today. Um, instead, I want you to, to ask yourself, you know, how has God used my life so far? Whose lives has, has God used mine to impact in the movie, George saved Harry's life, and years later, Harry was able then to save the lives of many troops on a military transport. Through Jesus Christ, God has saved your life, and he sends you forth to, to share that life with other people. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, I'm not George Bailey, I haven't done the things he's done, I've never saved anyone's life, and maybe you haven't. But maybe you have, too. I think God works through our lives to do incredible things that we don't always see. In fact, we don't often see the full extent of how God uses us to shape other people's lives. Maybe that coworker whom you befriended when no one else would has found hope and joy because of your friendship in a way that, that he wouldn't have otherwise. Maybe that, that son or that daughter who stopped going to church is going to remember your example of faith and return to Christ when he or she gets older. Clarence came to teach George not to give up and to give him insight into how valuable his life truly was. Both It's a Wonderful Life and God's Word demonstrate that no one's life 
is meaningless. Each person's life touches so many other lives, and God gives each of us a purpose, his purpose. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Your life's purpose is to do those things that God has prepared for you to do from the very beginning. We can't see the big picture. Uh, we can't see from God's view. We, our perspective is really kind of like a puzzle piece that can't see the rest of the puzzle. But as we've been learning so far together through the story, God writes his upper story in concert with our lower story. God does have a master storyline, and you are a main character. So if you are ever feeling worthless or hopeless, I'm here to tell you today that God delights in you and that he has given you an incredible gift. Those words in Ephesians that, that are before you, um, oh, we've skipped ahead a little too far now. Thank you to Darren in the back for uh, kind of covering for me when I pushed the wrong buttons, by the way. But uh, yeah, Paul says in Ephesians, not only God has prepared works in advance for us to do, but right before these words, he says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not, not something that you've earned on your own. It's a gift so that no one can boast. And so uh, it's not these works that save us. We have our value in Christ, but those, uh, those gifts that he gives to us through Jesus empower us to serve other people, uh, to live the life that he has us, that he's provided for us to live. And so uh, getting back to that next slide, I think this is what Jesus means in John 10.10 when he says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. George Bailey eventually came to realize how meaningful his life was too. The second question in your outline is, how are things different because Jesus was born? Maybe another way of putting a similar question, at least, is, if the manger had been empty that first Christmas morning, how would things be different in our world? I think the first and most obvious answer to that question goes along well with that phrase we just heard George say, I want to live again. In the movie, George Bailey does live again. And we know that the baby that's born in, in a Bethlehem manger will grow up and die for us. And then he will live again. And because he lives again, God's promise to us is that we will live with him forever. In fact, as I was watching It's a Wonderful Life this year, I found myself comparing George Bailey to Jesus in a number of different ways. Throughout his wonderful life, George always put the needs of others before his own, just as Jesus made himself nothing, emptied himself, humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. When George was tempted by Mr. Potter to give up the building and loan and come and work for him for his own comfort, he refused. Just as Jesus, when he was tempted by Satan to give up his kingdom for his own comfort, refused. 
George suffers these baseless accusations from Mr. Potter and, and even takes Uncle Billy's mistakes on himself, just as Jesus takes all of the accusations that Satan throws at us and lays them on himself. George goes about his father's work, though, though a little reluctantly at first, of caring for other people by providing homes for them, just as Jesus willingly and lovingly goes about his father's work by providing each one of us an eternal home with him. Without George, those, those soldiers, that, that sick boy and, and Harry, would have all died, just as without Jesus we would all be dead in our trespasses and sins. Without George, Bedford Falls would have become Pottersville, and this, this beautiful housing development he built would have been nothing more than a cemetery, just as without Jesus, this world would remain under the power of the devil forever. And in place of God's renewed paradise, there would be only a world of eternal death. But God has overcome the world that's controlled by Satan and is bringing a new one. And while George was said to be worth more dead than alive, this is where I think the analogy breaks down. The same cannot be said of Jesus. But nevertheless, his death has won for us eternal life, the best life insurance policy there ever was. I'm so thankful that we don't have to think about what things would be like without Jesus because the manger on that first Christmas morning wasn't empty. But the tomb on that first Easter morning was and so the question I want you to consider as you go from here today is the last one on, on your outline there. How does the eternal life won for you by Jesus impact your life right now? In the movie, George Bailey realized that his wonderful life had meaning and he found joy and, and, and peace and, and comfort in his family and in his community. And in this famous ending scene, his friends come to his aid. Now you stand right over here by the tree. Right there. And don't move. Don't move. What's happening? Wow. Oh, they're coming in. George, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. Who's got to come, Daddy? Who, Daddy? Come in, Uncle Billy. Everybody in George, Mary did it. She told some people you were in trouble with it. They scattered all over town collecting money. Didn't ask any questions. Just said, George in trouble. Tell me. What is this? Like it's red like fair. Another run on the bank. George discovered that his life has meaning. And your daily wonderful life has meaning too because of your family, because of your community, but especially because of the manger and the empty grave of Jesus Christ, who John says brings us life and light in his gospel. And in his letter, John says Jesus is eternal life. George's friends in that, in that final scene bring him money and uh, Harry comes along and, and uh, enters and says, to my, my brother George, the richest man in town. George receives all of these gifts from people because of, of his generosity and what he had done for them. So my question for you to consider is, what can you bring to Jesus this Advent season to thank him for all that he's done for you? Maybe it is a gift of, of money, a special offering of thanks. 
Maybe it's, it's a life that daily reflects God's love through Christ in an intentional way. Maybe it's a friend to come and worship him, someone who hasn't been to church for a long time. How does the eternal life that Jesus won for you impact your life right now? So I'll leave you with that question and with with these words of Jesus one more time. Let's read them together. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And I wonder if Jesus might have even said something like, I've come that they may have wonderful life and have it to the full. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, it truly is a wonderful life that you've given to us. Help us to uh, keep our eyes open to the opportunities you give us, the good works you prepared in advance for us to do. We thank you and praise you for, for your generosity towards us. Help us to be generous to you and to others and to live our lives in a way that pleases and honors you. In Jesus' name, amen. And I've got to throw this in too. I think if we end a sermon with something like that every week, that that might help a little bit. So uh, God's blessings and... uh